Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The People of God as a Positive Social Epidemic. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 23rd, 2014. After college graduation last spring, my daughter took a job at a university hospital as a clinical research coordinator in infectious diseases. That's crazy, I thought, as I pondered the lectionary for this week. Infectious diseases were part of the Hebrew Holiness Code 3,000 years ago. What's the connection between now and then? Infectious diseases can turn into epidemics that destroy entire communities. All sorts of pathogens like viruses, bacteria, and parasites can be transmitted in all sorts of ways by food, bugs, air, fluids, and so on. The 14th century bubonic plague killed upwards of 200 million people. Smallpox, measles, and typhoid wiped out 90% of the Native American population. And right now, a cholera outbreak in Haiti has killed over 8,000 people. What's true for the physical health of a community is also true for its civil, moral, and spiritual health. For example, we speak of a drug epidemic or an epidemic of gun violence. But we can flip this and also think of epidemics in a positive sense. That's what Rabbi Joshua Levine did in a 2009 article in the Huffington Post. Levine challenges us to spread positive social epidemics throughout our communities. In particular, he encourages a new epidemic of compassion, honor, goodness, gratitude, civility, and respect. That's what three of the readings for this week do. They urge God's people to spread life-giving social epidemics by reflecting his character. In each instance, the reading contrasts a negative with a positive social epidemic. God's people thus model a healthy alternative to our diseased communities. Don't live like the other nations, says Leviticus 19, either Egypt that was their past or the land of Canaan that was their future. Rather, be holy, for I am holy. Instead of slander, hatred, revenge, and grudges, says Leviticus 19, remember the poor, the alien, the aged, the deaf, and the blind. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19.5. In short, reflect the character of God, who is perfect love and infinite goodness. Don't live like a Roman tax collector or a pagan Gentile, says Jesus in Matthew 5. Don't hoard your money. Give it away. 
Share. Don't sue. Instead of obsessing about yourself, care for others. Beyond your prudent planning for the cares of life, abandon yourself to a God who is both infinitely powerful and intimately personal. After you've hedged every bet and calculated every contingency, enjoy the beauty of birdsong in the fragrance of flowers. Don't live like infants, like worldly people, or like mere mortals, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 3. Don't follow the wisdom of the world. Rather, trust yourself to the foolishness of God. Don't let social discord infect the Christian body, as with I follow Paul, I follow Peter, I follow Apollos. Rather, celebrate a unity beyond uniformity and a diversity beyond divisions. The community of God thus reflects the character of God. In the words of 1 Peter 2.9, it shows forth the praises of him who called you. And to reflect God's character, the community has received God's commandments. The word commandments is an unfortunate translation that can evoke all sorts of negative connotations. We shouldn't think of legalistic rule-keeping, which only leads to self-righteousness or despair. I like to think of God's commandments as promises rather than prohibitions. Even an ancient and enculturated text like Leviticus 19 makes this clear. Leviticus 19 is part of a complex holiness code that regulated community life for the Hebrew people 3,000 years ago. By one count, there are 613 commandments in the five books of Moses. The purity laws in Leviticus chapters 11 to 26 regulated every aspect of being human, birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, morality, and ethnicity. Gentiles, by the way, were considered impure. The purity laws specify what foods are clean to eat, rituals to perform after childbirth or a menstrual cycle, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, guidelines for planting seeds and mating animals, and regulations from things like mildew, tattoos, and child sacrifice. Some of these purity laws encoded common sense or moral ideals that we still follow today, like prohibitions against incest. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still others symbolized Israel's unique identity that differentiated it from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, the Holiness Code ritualized an exhortation from Yahweh that is as relevant today as it was back then. Be holy, 
because the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 19.2 God's community should thus reflect his character through the help of his commandments. Some people object to rules and regulations as oppressive. To me, after you update the enculturation of the ancient text, Leviticus sounds like paradise. Imagine a community where people didn't steal, but instead shared liberally with others in need. Think what work would feel like if employers never exploited their employees. What courts would look like if witnesses never gave false testimony and judges didn't accept bribes. Dream about a world where women and girls were not trafficked for profit and where the aged the alien, and the infirm were honored instead of marginalized. Jesus adopts this ancient text as a manifesto for his mission. He didn't come to abolish this ancient law, he says, but to fulfill, broaden, and deepen it. He provokes us to move beyond outward ritual to inward transformation, to live with interior compassion for people instead of exterior compliance to a law. When that happens, says Jesus, the people of God reflect the character of God. They spread all sorts of positive social pathogens that build a healthy community that's nothing short of what Matthew 5.48 calls perfect. And it's perfect not because we always reach the ideal, but because, as Luke 6.36 puts it, because above all things we seek to be merciful. The people of God as a positive social epidemic. For books this week, I review a title by the British novelist Julian Barnes. It's called Levels of Life, New York, Knopf, 2013, 128 pages. In his last book, The Sense of an Ending, from 2011, the British writer Julian Barnes explored the relationship between personal memory self-identity, aging, and, by the end of the story, deep regret. The novel won the Man Booker Prize for the best English-language work of fiction. In his 2008 book, Nothing to be Frightened of, he examined his fear of death given his lack of religious faith. Was it possible, he wondered, to give his life a meaningful narrative? Barnes's newest book is a meditation on the relationship between grief and love. When you put two things together that have never been together, things change. Sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worse. Just as balloonists can be punished for their bravado in the face of obvious dangers, 
and yet still seek the thrill of flight. We all aspire to soar, mainly through art, religion, and especially love. But to soar risks a crash. Every love story, writes Barnes, is a potential grief story. But like the balloonanatics, we still long to love despite the dangers. After two introductory chapters about balloonists, Barnes's final chapter considers his own experiences of grief when his wife of 30 years died. 37 days from diagnosis to death. Despite the onslaught of confusing and contradictory experiences, there seem to be two lessons here. First, when you put two people together and one is taken away, what is taken away is greater than the sum of what was there. This might not be mathematically possible, but it's emotionally possible. And second, the grief we bear is proportionate to the love we shared. A friend wrote to Barnes after his wife's death, quote, The thing is, nature is so exact. It hurts exactly as much as it is worth. So in a way, one relishes the pain. If it didn't matter, it wouldn't matter, end quote. And so, whereas you might not relish pain, it isn't futile, for pain is a proof of love. Julian Barnes, Levels of Life For movies this week, I review 12 Years a Slave, from last year, 2013. In 1853, Solomon Northup published an autobiographical slave narrative called Twelve Years a Slave. Northup was a free-born African-American from Saratoga Springs, New York, who enjoyed a good life with a wife and two children. But then he was kidnapped in 1841 when he took a job in Washington where his employers drugged him and sold him into slavery. He ended up on a Louisiana plantation run by a sadistic owner. This movie dramatizes that true story. It goes without saying that Northup was one of the very few slaves who regained their freedom. One reviewer rightly said of this movie that some of the scenes are almost unbearable in their cruelty. And yet we know that the social and historical realities of slavery for African Americans was far worse than even this disturbing movie. Twelve Years a Slave And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by one of my favorite poets, Edwina Gately. The title of the poem is Silent God. It's from the book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One, which is itself by Edwina Gately. Silent God. This is my prayer, that, though I may not see, 
I be aware of the silent God who stands by me. That, though I may not feel, I be aware of the mighty love which doggedly follows me. That, though I may not respond, I be aware that God, my silent, mighty God, waits each day, quietly, hopefully, persistently, waits each day and through each night for me, for me alone. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 23rd, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.